Our uh, text today is in uh, Mark chapter 9. I encourage you to turn there. Mark chapter 9, specifically verses 30 through 37. Mark chapter 9. I'll be reading starting at verse 30. If you're able to, please stand as I read. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Our great God and heavenly Father, what a joy and privilege to be able to study your word. How kind, O Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us in your word, that you would give us a Bible that is accessible to us, a Bible that we can actually understand. We can read it in, in our own language. And to be sure, O oh Lord, we have no shortage of other resources and books and commentaries that help us to understand your word, to understand the, the deep truths of your word. This is all from you, from your kind grace towards us. So I do pray that by your spirit you would give us ears right now to hear your voice and eyes to see Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Business leader Jim Collins wrote a book several years ago called Good to Great. I'm sure many of you have heard of it. Maybe you've read it. It's probably been out for 20 years now. Collins set out to figure out how good companies can become great companies. So he set out to interview a wide array of business leaders, of CEOs and presidents of some major, major corporations and major companies. And he wrote that he was absolutely astonished and surprised at what he found and what he learned. He found that at the very top level of leadership of all of these very impressive companies were leaders who did not believe the press clippings about themselves. He was actually shocked at how unassuming understated, even self-effacing these leaders were. They didn't even want to talk about themselves in the interviews. They preferred instead to praise the accomplishments of their staff, of their colleagues, of their employees. And so what surprised Collins and his researchers was really in one word, their humility. Leaders who modeled humility, employees who saw that being modeled and began to work that out in their jobs and their careers, that's what made such a huge difference in turning good companies into great companies. 
Now, Collins is not a Christian. Good to great is it's not a, a Christian book. Yet its insights and even conclusions about humility are absolutely Christian. I mean, what, what Collins and his researchers kind of stumbled upon, we actually read in the Word of God. We read that. We find that in the very words of Jesus here in Mark chapter 9. Now, we are right in the middle of this book of Mark, which means that we are right in the middle of a great discipleship course taught by Jesus. And in the last few weeks, as many of you know, Jesus has been teaching us about what it actually means to live in his kingdom. It involves dying, death, death to self, death to our own needs, so that we might live for the sake of others. It's a Willingness to carry our cross, to endure suffering, pain, hardship. Why? Because we are following a crucified Messiah. But life in God's kingdom, it's not pure drudgery. It's not just one disappointment or discouragement after the next. It's not without hope because we learn that carrying our cross now leads somewhere. It, in fact, leads to glory later, eternal glory, eternal pleasures with God the Father. But yes, following Jesus now, today, tomorrow, in this earthly life, it does require faith, a faith that can be nurtured, a faith that can be grown, a faith that can be stretched and matured, even, as we saw last week, even in our failures. And in our text today, Jesus teaches us about the need for humility. In fact, there's no other way to enter into God's kingdom than with a humble heart. And there's no other way to thrive and live and enjoy the blessings of God's kingdom than with that same humble heart. Now the problem for these disciples, and certainly for us, is that sometimes we're not all that humble. Just think about the last week of your life. Think about the words that you shared. Our words can sometimes fly out of our mouths at warp speed, can't they? So very fast. You can't pull them back in. Consider your actions. Think about the responses that may have been silent or verbalized to the people and the circumstances that you faced. I, I think if we're really honest, we, we all still have much to learn when it comes to functionally living with this kind of humility, living a, a humble, Christ-honoring life, pride, and there are so many sinister off-ramps for pride every single day, that's a much bigger problem than probably most of us really want to admit. That kind of pride can work itself, sometimes so subtly, into our marriages and into our business relationships, and into our neighborhoods, and into our homes, so much so that sometimes we don't even realize, and it takes very, very long for the blinders to actually fall, and the scales to fall from our eyes. Take it from someone who knew this very well, St. Augustine. After years of sinful, willful rebellion against God, he actually had the courage to write to a young student that he was mentoring and he said this, if you ask me what the essential thing in the religion and discipline of Jesus Christ is, in other words, what Augustine's saying is, look, if you want to know what's most important in following Jesus as his disciple, here it is. I shall reply, first, humility. Second, humility. Third, humility. Jesus also knows this to be true. 
And this is why he zeroes in on the great need here for humility for all those who would seek to follow Jesus, for all those who are his disciples. And so from our text here in Mark chapter 9, we find two reasons, two God-honoring reasons to be humble, two reasons to apply this kind of Christ-like humility in our lives. Here's reason number one to be humble. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of the cross, verses 30 through 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want, that is Jesus, do you want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. So Jesus and his disciples are once again on the move. This time they're headed really towards their home base there in Capernaum. And once again, Jesus is teaching his disciples, but he's doing it in private, away from the crowds. Really, since Peter's confession of faith that we read that in Mark chapter 8, uh, Jesus has shifted from very public teaching and public proclamation and these very public miracles to, to private instruction here, almost one-on-one here for those 12 disciples. Now, this is the second of three times that Jesus has said to his disciples exactly who he is, what he's going to do. He explains to him the kind of Messiah that he is. He's the kind of Messiah that will be rejected. He's the kind of Messiah that will suffer. He's the kind of Messiah that will die on a cross for sins that he did not commit. He's the kind of Messiah that will then rise from the dead. He's the humble Christ, the humble Messiah, dying so that sinners might live, exchanging his life for the lives of his own disciples for our lives. And what Mark again makes clear in this text is that that just went over the heads of his disciples yet again. They're two for two on that, by the way. They're not understanding it. They're not getting it. In fact, there are two things that Jesus has said here that his disciples find just absolutely incomprehensible. First, a Messiah that would suffer and die. Again, that doesn't make any sense to these 12 disciples because they know, they paid attention in class that day and when, when they taught that the, the Messiah is going to be victorious and that Messiah is going to reign and rule. He was the one who was destined to establish an eternal kingdom of justice and righteousness and truth. 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah chapter 9. They had read those passages. They understood them, so they thought. And therefore, the Messiah is going to conquer, not be conquered. He's going to rule, not be rejected. He's going to defeat enemies, not die for them. The second problem for these disciples was, well, that the Messiah would then rise from the dead. I mean, this was an equally large mental hurdle for them to overcome. The resurrection in Judaism was viewed as as occurring at the end of time. It would be the very last battle when all the dead would rise and they would be judged by God. That's Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. But all that happens at the end of time. It's not going to happen during their lifetimes. They're not going to witness this. So they had no category for an individual who would suffer and die, be crucified, and then rise again, and they would see that. So their hearts are 
not understanding. These disciples who had walked with Jesus for a considerable amount of time now, they're not getting it. They don't understand who he is. Their hearts are still spiritually dull, and that spiritual dullness has been a theme, hasn't it, in the book of Mark. Jesus has talked to them about that four separate occasions. Chapter 4, chapter 7, twice in chapter 8. The fact that Jesus is still hanging in there with these disciples should be of great encouragement to all of us when we don't understand, when, when there's just a thickness in our brains and in our hearts. But Jesus hangs in there with us. He's always faithful. He's never going to leave us. But the problem for these disciples is that they're starting to figure out now that Jesus knows that they don't understand. And this is why they're afraid to ask him. Because asking Jesus about his ministry, about his mission, well, that would be an admission that Jesus has been right all along about them, that they're not getting it, that their hearts are spiritual at all, that they're not understanding the kind of Messiah Jesus is. They're really not understanding the humility of Christ. And so here we have an example, brothers and sisters, where, where human pride so easily lurks. We all have a caricature of that prideful person. For most of us, we think of the person who's really arrogant, the person who's really prideful is the one who just can't stop talking about himself or herself, just kind of keeps injecting words into a conversation, just kind of probably misses some social cues and they just can't stop talking about themselves or reminding people about their accolades and accomplishments. Sometimes, pride is shrinking back and saying nothing at all. It's not asking for help when help is actually right in front of you. That's where the disciples are at, but they refuse in their pride to ask Jesus for clarification, for help, for understanding. And so what the disciples couldn't grasp here is that humility is, in fact, the way of the cross. It's the way of Christ. It's the way of their Messiah. And what they couldn't grasp then was that not only was it the way of Christ and the way of the Messiah, but if they're to follow Jesus faithfully, that's also their path that they must walk. It's the path that they're called to take. We don't, we don't get to make up what we think following Jesus should be like. That would be a bad situation, wouldn't it? What we do have the privilege of doing is understanding more how Jesus walked and patterning our lives after him as much as we can, following the path of humility. Our lives of Jesus are to reflect the one we actually believe and the one we actually follow. I said it a few weeks ago. Our discipleship is modeled after Jesus' messiahship. What it is that we do as a disciple we're not just making these decisions on our own, but we're seeking to follow Jesus. And if we're really seeking to follow Jesus, then we want to live as he did. Jesus is, brothers and sisters, he's the supreme example of humility. Nobody was more humble than Jesus. Not only did he leave the glories of heaven to be born in a manger, Christmas, incarnation, come to earth, but then 
th- th- that was simply really the, the first step in a long line of events that would ultimately lead to him dying on a cross, a gruesome death for us, for sinful, prideful people. Christ himself said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, that, that all people should learn from him. And notice why. Learn from him because of his meekness, that is, because of his humility, not because of all of his impressive miracles. So if humility really is the way of the cross, and it is, then our task as disciples of Jesus is to learn from Jesus how to be humble, to learn from Jesus really how to live. And here, herein lies one of the great challenges as we think about humility and growing in humility. We're not going to grow in humility by fixing our eyes on humility, by being fixated on humility. So if we wake up every morning and say, okay, look, I need to grow, I need to be humble, good. So I'm going to write and make a list. I'm going to do six humble acts a day. And I'm going to check that box. Why, why didn't you notice? That was super humble. What I just said. How come you don't notice that? You, you're not recognizing my humility. If we turn inward, it becomes just very self-focused. We're not going to grow in humility like that. The only way, brothers and sisters, that we will grow in humility is by fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the supreme example of humility, to learn from him how to live. And so we see Jesus in the humility of the cross here, God-man on earth who absorbed then all our sins on the cross, we, we have a better understanding then of, okay, that's the path that, that I'm called to walk, that path of suffering, the path that's the way of the cross. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, little by little, that our lives can become more like his. That little by little, and it will be little by little, we actually can be changed. We can reflect more the humility of Christ in our interactions in life. Walking in the path of Christ. It's the path of humility. If we're going to walk that way, you need to know that Christ-like humility hurts. Don't let anybody tell you any different. At least in the short term. It's painful. We don't, we don't, we don't like, we're not naturally humble. So it's painful in the minute, but but it leads to long-term spiritual blessings and rewards. A humility that says, Lord, I don't deserve anything good from you. In fact, what I do deserve is hell. I deserve punishment for my sins. Yet the beauty of the gospel is that in Christ, united by faith in Christ, you and I can be honest about our sins about our shortcomings, about our weaknesses, about our failures, and know that we have a Savior who loves us and died for us, died for us in our place. A humility that says, you know, I, I don't really know much about Jesus, but I'm here, I'm, I'm listening this morning, and all I know is I could never be right with a holy God. There's, there's not enough things I could do, because I'm really not a naturally nice person, so if, if being nice gets me into heaven, I don't have a shot. And you're right, you don't, none of us do. It's not, it's not about performing better than others or or up to a certain standard that you have or others. There's no hope in that at all, but a humility that says, Lord, the only way that I can be accepted by a holy God as a parent, as a CEO, as an employee, as a person, is because I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and that is a gift of God's grace that I receive. A humility that sees 
Christ on the way to Calvary and understands that he, he gave up everything for us. So is there any sacrifice that's too great to give up for him? Reason number one, to be humble. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of Christ. Here's reason number two. It's the way to be great. It's the way to be great. Verses 33 and 34. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So here we have Jesus and his disciples. They've arrived at the house, probably Peter's house, their home base. Jesus, of course, knows exactly the conversation that went down on the way. We can imagine that he's maybe following a step or two behind his disciples. He's listening. He's hearing. He's taking it all in. And so they finally get to this house, this private place. And Jesus says, hey, guys, remember on the road here? A lot of noise. A lot of arguments. A lot of loud voices. What's really going on? crickets. None of the disciples say a word. Not even Peter, which I think I guess is tremendous growth for Peter. I mean, how does he not say anything in that situation? Come on, Peter. But probably you and I wouldn't say anything either, would we? I mean, what if I mean, what would you say if Jesus catches you in an argument with somebody in your home group about who's better? We probably wouldn't say anything. It would be really humbling, wouldn't it, if, if, if some, not even all, but some of our self-absorbed thoughts during the week were just thrown up on the screen behind. I would turn red. I'm sure you would as well. It's been said that the smallest package in the world is the man or woman who is completely wrapped up in themselves. That's where the disciples are at, aren't they? They're... They're so self-absorbed here, and it's kind of ironic. In fact, I think it is very ironic that these disciples, most of them are blue-collar guys. They don't have pedigree. They don't have education. They don't have a lot to show for it in life. They're just blue-collar, lower-class working guys. They're the ones that are actually arguing about who's the greatest. And so Peter says, hey, I walked on water. Have you done that? Clearly, I'm the greatest. James and John, like, saying, man, uh, Peter, Jesus gave us a very cool title. He called us sons of thunder. We're clearly, that's what he means, we're the greatest. So we read this centuries later and we think, how foolish were these guys? I mean, we, we would never do that. Debating about greatness in the kingdom of God, we're, we're at least usually a little bit more refined in our self-absorption, aren't we? But what's helpful to really understand here is, is the context in first century and in the first century Judaism, there was a hierarchy of honor that just permeated all of life. So boasting was actually considered necessary to confirm your status in life. The Apostle Paul picks up this theme in Galatians and in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 where Paul says, look, there's a lot of boasting going on. He says, if you're going to boast, well, boast in the cross of Christ. Titles were hugely important. Doctor, reverend, CEO, president. Titles determined who you spoke to. Titles determined who your friends were. Titles determined who you would never be caught dead speaking to. And so these, these issues of rank and position and status 
Well, it's going to show up again for these disciples a little bit later, Mark chapter 10, where James and John, yep, those two sons of thunder, can't wait to get to that passage, they actually asked Jesus, we'd really like the best spots and the seats in the kingdom. So again, there's this hierarchy of honor. Jewish scribes, they were impacted. They often debated, and they debated in public about who was greatest in the kingdom of God. So it would be like coming into this church and, I don't know, Paul Drew and I are up here thinking, no, I'm, I'm better than you. How, how weird would that be? How awful would that be? So they debated and said, I, I, was, I was taught by the best. I obeyed the most. I know the most. Therefore, I'm the greatest. And these same scribes often taught that your earthly order would have rank and importance in your heavenly order. So in other words, the better your status on earth, the better your status in heaven. So what happens if you don't really have a good status or rank on earth? That's going to be a problem, isn't it? My grade 10 biology teacher used grades on the most recent test to determine where you sat in her class. So the worst grade sat right in front of her desk right in front of her, and the person who got the best grade in the class sat way in the back, farthest from her. You could get away with that in Canada in the 1980s, evidently. I don't know that you could now, but you knew just by, and I, I'm not even tell you where I sat. <laughs> don't even ask me. But you knew just by looking around, well, who's the best? Who, who got the, the best grade? Who's the smartest on that particular class? Who ranked the best? That was the culture of the first century. That's the air that the disciples are breathing. So they knew just by looking around who had positions of honor and prestige and power and influence by where they sat, by who they talked to in the synagogue, by who was at their dinner table. And so that kind of thinking, well, that crept into the disciples' minds and to their hearts here. And so they're thinking, if, if we can just stay close to Jesus... Well, maybe we too can enjoy positions of power and prominence. People are going to pay attention to us. If we can just stick close to Jesus, we, I think Jesus is our ticket to that life. And Jesus says, guys, you got it all wrong. Have a seat. Let's talk about greatness in God's kingdom. Verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, notice what Jesus does not do here. I think this is absolutely incredible. He doesn't scold them for talking about greatness. He doesn't reject their desire for greatness either. It's not like Jesus says, hey, guys, average is okay. Be mediocre. No, he doesn't say that at all. Instead, what Jesus does is he redefines greatness. He redefines greatness according to the kingdom of God. He says, guys, it's not this. It's not this world. It's not the air that you're breathing. It's not what you're seeing. It's this. So you want to be great, Jesus says? Humble yourself and serve others. And with that, Jesus has just turned the entire first century cultural system upside down and backwards and sideways. And the implications 
we're still working through here 20 centuries later, 21. What did, what did Jesus just say? If you want to be first, go to the back of the line. If you want to lead, then serve. It's the way up, it's the way down. You want to be great in the kingdom of God, get low and stay low. Now, you may be here this morning, maybe you're starting just trying to figure some things out. You're not quite sure who this Jesus is, and you're thinking, well, what gives him the right to say that? That guy's going to die. Well, Jesus is not calling us to something that he has not already done. He's certainly not calling us to follow him to a place that he has not already gone. Nobody's greater than Jesus. Nobody's more humble than Jesus. Nobody served sinners better than Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. To give his life a ransom for many. So you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Excellent, great. Get low and stay low. That's the pathway to greatness here is defined by Jesus. So brothers and sisters, a big part of what it means to, to be a disciple of Jesus, it means that more and more we're learning to take our cues not from the world, not from cultural standards. What's greatness look like in the 21st century? We know that. But actually, we, we take our cues from the word of God from the words of Jesus himself. So whatever ideas that you might have about greatness when you came in here, what you need to do is determine if they actually spring from the word of God or if in some way you may be trying to take some worldly cultural ideas about greatness, about what a great life even looks like and try and make that fit, try and make that jive with scripture. You know, had the disciples really understood that Jesus was walking ahead to his sacrificial death, well, they would have realized how ridiculous it was to, to push and shove and argue and to try and come up with a plan of, of who, who is the greatest. Because when you're marching to a cross, you, you stop pushing ahead to get noticed. Humility, getting low and staying low. That's the way to be great in God's kingdom. And so just as I asked you a few moments ago, think, think of that prideful person. We all have some idea, right or wrong. Well, think of that humble person that you know. Sometimes we have to work through and correct our ideas of, of what, what this Christ-like humility, what, what does that actually look like? Humility, on the one hand, is not saying, I'm just going to be passive. I'm just going to let everybody just walk over me. I'm never going to say anything. That's clearly what Jesus is teaching here. I'm just going to be humble. No, that's false humility. False humility actually serves to, to look good at root. To, it actually draws attention to yourself. It, at root, it enjoys the praise of men. God-pleasing humility delights to serve, enjoys the praise of God. So really, there's a, there's a false humility that, that really does take delight in Showing and telling everyone or having people say, you're, you're last, good on you. True humility, true greatness really delights in making others feel first. It's getting low and staying low. And Jesus gives an example 
of what this greatness looks like, of what this humility looks like, of what it means to be a servant of all, verse 36 and 37. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Absolutely earth-shattering what Jesus has just said here and what Jesus has just done in taking this child into his arms. In our Western world, much of our Western culture, we tend to think of children as pure and innocent and vulnerable, kind of weak but gentle. But in the Greco-Roman world, particularly the Roman world of the first century, there was zero sentimentality when it came to kids. There's no Disneyland, there's no Pixar movies, there's no Chuck E. Cheese in the first century because children had zero status. In fact, infant mortality rates were horrifically high. Unwanted children were often abandoned, ex left exposed, even murdered. Now, that's in the Roman world. Now, the Jews were, were better in their treatment of children. They, they prohibited abortion. They prohibited infanticide. But because, remember, that hierarchy of honor that permeated Jewish life, children were to be seen but never heard. I mean, they were at the lowest level. It wasn't until Christianity burst onto the scene. It wasn't until the gospel began to spread uh, in the first century that uh, the perception and the status of children actually changed because Christianity has always opposed abortion. Christianity has always opposed infanticide. And opposition to abortion and infanticide, it's not just a Christian position. Brothers and sisters, it is the Christian position, and it always has been since the very beginning. So what's Jesus saying here? Well, he's not saying that children are the supreme example of humility. We know that, don't we, parents? <laughs> Sometimes far from it. But Jesus is saying here that how you treat children and those who are like children, that is an example of humility. In fact, that is an example of greatness in the kingdom of God. So you want to be great? And I know you do, as I do too. That's God-given. But we have to redefine what greatness looks like. You want to be great in God's kingdom? Welcome these little children that are not considered important. You want to be a servant to all? Get low and stay low. True greatness in God's kingdom means welcoming those who are deemed irrelevant, who are deemed unworthy by worldly standards. Greatness in God's kingdom means actively befriending those of lower status, of lower rank than you. That is the way of the cross. That is the way of Jesus. That's the way of Christ, and that is the way to be great in God's kingdom. And so Jesus says in verse 37 that when you honor a child, that is, when you welcome someone who may be considered unworthy and unimportant, you, in fact, set off a chain reaction that reaches the very throne room of heaven. When you give attention to the lowly, you are serving Christ. When you welcome the lowly ones, you welcome the Messiah, all those who serve the weakest and the least significant of Jesus' followers are actually serving Jesus. And in turn, the God who sent him. 
It's incredible, isn't it? You want to be great in God's kingdom, get low and stay low and serve those around you who are also considered low. So who, who, who are we talking about here? Who are the low in our world? I think, I think maybe you're, if you're caring for aging parents, you know what this is like. You know your parents are not getting any younger. You know that they're not getting any healthier. And so every day brings more need. It brings maybe more burdens and dependence on you or on others to care for them. Serving the low certainly includes the sick, the poor, the downtrodden, the down and out. It's the people that we meet every week and we look at them and we think, it looks like they've had a hard life. Why are they talking like that? Why are they dressed like that? It's so easy for us to to look at them with just human eyes, but what we fail to recognize sometimes, brothers and sisters, is that they have a soul, that they are created in the image of God, and they are they're desperately searching for him. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, find people to serve that will actually give you nothing in return. So maybe you are the boss, maybe you're the CEO, you've got a lot of people that report to you, what can you do this week to honor those who make far less money than you do? How, how might you be able to show them honor this week? Perhaps you work in maybe an administrative role, more, more of a support role, an assistant, and you're used to people just giving you all kinds of stuff to do. Your desk just gets piled up with stuff. That's the end of the day. You can't even see over your desk because people just lop stuff and expect you to do it. That takes Christ-like humility to serve others, to actively work for their good, even as it comes perhaps at your expense, but yet you are following in the path of your Savior. Jesus walked the road of humility. Humility is the way to be great in God's kingdom. So who is it this week that you can actually serve that really has nothing to give to you, nothing to offer to you in return, nothing to pad your spiritual resume with? And the truth is, brothers and sisters, we don't need to look too far for those people, do we? Think about a spouse, think about children, think about parents, think about the people that we meet and see on a regular basis. There are all kinds of examples of how it is that we can really put this into practice. I, I think specifically at, at our church, you heard if you were here in our members meeting this morning of just some, some wonderful ways that we're really learning to love each other and growing in our love for each other. Every Sunday, just before I get up here, I'll usually take a quick peek back in the nursery, I go back there, I say to those dear servants who are working there, hi, how's it going? And they say, good. If they were to say something other than that, I don't know what I would do. So I'm really thankful that they say good. But, but I always notice there's the servants back there, and, and it's always incredible that uh, really routinely I'll, I'll notice that people are serving back there who Maybe they're, they're retired. Maybe they don't have any reason to be back there. Their kids are not there. They're not receiving any benefit from there. The only thing they're receiving by rolling around on the floor with young kids are sore knees and an aching back. Yet there they are, serving, honoring the Lord, honoring King Jesus. I mean, what a great example to, to those in the nursery, to those young kids. What a great example to us, to, to all of us here. I, I think, what, what a great example to you teenagers or junior hires. I mean, you walk back there and you take a look and you think, 
That guy makes six figures. What's he doing rolling around? He doesn't have any kids that are there. These kids are all grown up. But he's, he's rolling around on the floor throwing balls with kids. That's, that's Christ-like humility. And local churches like ours wouldn't survive long without people like that. And that kind of ministry, that has implications far beyond a couple hours on a Sunday morning. So what can you do this week to get low and stay low? Speaking of teenagers or junior hires, I see many of you here. Can I just say, number one, I'm really glad that you are here. It's important that you're here. Hmm. This is not in my notes. <laughs> but I know as, as, as a junior hire, as teenagers, I know that you are so aware of your, of your rank, of your status, of, of where you fit in in life, whether it's in class or on a team. I mean, every teenager I've met, and I live with several, every teenager is asking three questions. Why is everybody looking at me? Why is nobody looking at me? Why do I care whether nobody or everybody is looking at me so much? I just want to say to you, teenagers, the gospel frees you. As you, as you better understand the humility of Christ, I mean, it frees you up to be the kind of teenager that you can actually be friends with anybody. So you don't have to settle for a clique or a small group of friends. You can be the kind of teenager that actually you can be friends with anybody. You can welcome anybody into your circle. You can reach out to the lonely and the discouraged at your high school. That's the work of, of Christ in your life. Because if Jesus is your king and you're seeking to follow in his footsteps, well, it just frees you then from the earthly vice of, of status and recognition and applause and even self-absorption. And parents, hey, we we got a huge role here to play with our children, don't we, to help them see, as, as your teenagers or junior highs are saying, this is what I need in order to fit in, and this is what I need in order to have others notice me, or this is the kind of person that I need to be like. Parents were, were humbly, boldly helping them see that Jesus is the only one who can set them free from their self-absorption. He's the only one that can set us free from the same thing. So that same gospel, that same Jesus, is, it's not just for teenagers. It's for middle-aged people and retired people. It's for every man or woman who, who still struggles with pride and sinful desires to be seen as important and significant to the people around us. And so it's the same gospel, it's the same Jesus that we're returning to time and time again that frees us from only caring about ourselves to actually actively caring for those around us that can give us nothing in return. That kind of Christ-like humility. That is the way of the cross. That's the way to be great in the kingdom of God. And that's also the way that good churches, by God's great supernatural grace, that's how good churches can actually become great in the eyes of God. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, I pray that your word would 
make an imprint and an impression on our hearts. Lord, as we confess that we do struggle in so many different ways with a desire to be noticed, a desire to be right, a desire to have people think well of us, and on and on it goes. Lord, we, we have to turn to you. So I pray that we would be quick this week to turn to you. We're thankful, Lord, that you love, you love prideful people. You died for prideful people. And you rose again so that we might grow, be changed and transformed by your Holy Spirit. One day, Lord, we're not going to have to battle our sinful self-absorbed hearts and what a great day that will be but until that day give us your sufficient grace i pray in jesus name amen